the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, let's continue our sojourn in Coffs Harbour. Today we talk with Wing Commander retired Pete Bennett's. Now, in 1966, Pete joined the Australian Air Force as an air traffic controller. Air traffic control is a vital function in keeping the Air Force fleet safe and operational. It's often edge of the seat work and on occasions extremely demanding. He served as an air traffic controller at many locations and that included Sydney International. He was well promoted and served in many senior officer postings, including examining standardization officer, operational requirements, senior air traffic control officer, Air Force Office, Monash, Mount Eliza Business School, Joint Services Staff College and Management Development Branch. He retired from the RAAF in 1993. He then worked with the Civil Aviation Authority and also Air Services Australia until he again retired in 2005. Well, then he started a career in volunteering, joining Rotary, Chamber of Commerce, National Seniors Australia, Coffs Coast Branch, and Air Force Association, Coffs Harbour and District Branch. As with his Air Force career, he was very active, earning respect and many accolades and awards, gaining a New South Wales Government Community Service Award in 2019. Well, Peter Bennett, it is an absolute pleasure to meet you and congratulations on being in one of the most important jobs in the whole history of aviation, air traffic controller. Oh, thank you, Gareth. I believe you wanted to join the Air Force in the Royal Australian Air Force in 1966, but you were too young. How did that work out? I could join the Air Force, but I couldn't commence air traffic controller training until I turned 21. Was there a reason for that? Uh, Just the 21 at the time. The issue was being able to hold a licence. And once you started training, you were in that pipeline of a, of a licence and the licence could not be uh, held unless you were of age, as they said, 21. Why in the first place did you want to join the RAAF? What was the motivation? Uh, my mum was in the Air Force. I had an uncle in the Air Force. Uh, I saw an ad in the paper that was for air traffic control and it just struck a chord with me, so it just progressed from there. It wasn't a lifelong ambition, but certainly the background and then seeing this ad in the paper for air traffic control. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I was under the impression that when a person joined the uh, RAAF in the first place, that they didn't choose the path, the career path they went walk down that the RAAF chose it for you. Was that not the case with air traffic controllers? No, your application was for an officer in the air traffic control uh, or special duties branch air traffic control category. It's probably fair to say that there's a little bit of me thought, well, if I come in as an officer, I won't have to go through what a lot of other people do. Oh, so you actually do the course and you come out at the other end as, as an officer? Commissioned as an officer before I even did the course. 
So what was it about being an air traffic controller that, that interested you? It's very hard to explain, uh, Gareth. The way that it has come about since, and I did not know this at the time, there's uh, only about 20% of the human population can what we call think in the third dimension or, as I call it, the fourth dimension, and that is um, uh, three dimensions being a volume but then being able to put speed and time into that uh, volume of airspace. I apparently was one of the 20% that had that. You cannot train it. You've either got it or you don't. A bit like playing a piano, and I can't do that. So how do they assess that 20%? How do they know that which one's got it and which one has it? Very, very rigid, and even more rigid now than what it was 50-odd um, years ago, uh, of uh, psychological testing and situational awareness, those sorts of things that it's mumbo-jumbo to the average man, but the psychologists seem to know what they're talking about. We rarely have anybody who gets through that process who has a problem of, as I said, the f uh, fourth dimension, speed and time in a volume. We did have one on my course, in fact. He was a Malaysian prince. He was, in his mind, flat earth, and uh, he had great difficulty. He was scrubbed off the course, and that almost caused an international incident. Not only was he Malaysian, uh, but he was also a Malay, and he was a prince. That okay. did cause a bit of an issue. Tell a lay person, I'm looking at a screen as an air traffic controller. I see what's on the screen, which is a flat screen. Am I able to think or am I able to see outside of that screen while looking at the screen? How does it work? I guess that's what I was alluding to with uh, you've either got it or you don't. You can look at the flat screen, that gives you two dimensions. There's information there on the screen or on peripheral uh, uh, data strips or something that gives you other information, height, altitude I should say, and speed, things like that, that you then take on board inside your head. And that's part of what the job is. It's like when I ask someone who speaks another language, whose native tongue is English, when you're talking in German, French or whatever, are you thinking in English or are you thinking in that language? So are you, as the air traffic controller, looking at that screen, thinking images in your head or seeing images in your head other than what's on the screen? Yes, and it's in a, it's in a volume. You, you're seeing it in three dimensions, in your mind. Well, at least, at least I do. Maybe my head's different. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it looks perfectly all right to me. Uh, so uh, you you join the air force, you get involved with air traffic controlling. Um, when you get in, you're posted. I believe was Pierce your first spot? Uh, no, East Sale, of course. Um, I went to Townsville first as a on the job unqualified until I turned twenty one. Then did the course at. Uh, East Sale, then it was called Central Flying School Sea Flight. It's now the Air Traffic Control, the School of Air Traffic Control. Mm. Um, and then I was posted to Base Squadron at East Sale, uh, and I was there for a number of years. And th while, during my time there, uh, we also, uh, East Sale was one of three where students from the Air Traffic Control course did some. Um, practical training 
at each of three bases, Esail being one of them. So I saw many students go through in my time there, including many international students. And I guess that in a way, that's why I have a better ear for foreign accents than some people. My wife, Wendy, um, sometimes says, what is that person talking about? They're talking in English, but with an accent and I don't have a problem with that so that was a positive from that side of things just by being at Base Squadron East Sale in the mm-hmm. 60s. Uh, an offside question uh, is do all air traffic and sorry do all pilots uh, is there a, t- a language English right across the planet no matter where they were born is that the universal language for air traffic controlling and pilots? There's supposed to be. Uh, some countries uh, don't have that, don't adhere to that internally. Uh, that does cause a problem. However, it is supposed to be the international language of air traffic control. We have either civilian air traffic controllers who are looking after domestic flights, international flights, and air force air traffic controllers. What is the relationship between those two? Because obviously, Air Force planes are in the air at the same time as domestic and international flights. So what's the cooperation between civil and Air Force? Very, very high level of of, uh, cooperation. Um, One thing to understand, Gareth, is that in most cases we don't have in the same piece of airspace some aircraft being controlled by a civilian controller and some by a military controller. What we do is we divide the airspace. So if I've got a sector of airspace, then I will be looking after all aircraft, military and civil, within that airspace. And an example of that is uh, my time at Mascot in Sydney. I was unfortunately only there for a year and they decided to promote me and post me, but never never mind that. So the sector that I looked after, called Sector 8 at the time, it had all airspace to the northwest of uh, Sydney, uh, out to about uh, 160 nautical miles, I think, and up to all altitudes. And that we looked after spoke to, controlled all aircraft in that airspace. Obviously there was coordination at boundaries as aircraft crossed from Sector 8 airspace to either civilian or perhaps to Williamtown or down into Richmond. Sure. Uh, And while you're at Mascot, you're there as, well, the man who's paying your salary is the Royal Australian Air Force and you're working in Mascot, there are civilians there. Who's in charge? That's a good question. Sometimes you would wonder who. There's not somebody actually in control totally. Doesn't need to be because each of the bits of airspace belong to the controller that's there. There are people who are responsible for effective coordination across all of the uh, different sectors. And of course, that that includes as you get in closer to uh, an airport, you're going to hand off to um, the approach controllers and then to the tower controllers. So it's all about the management of airspace, the aircraft in a particular bit of airspace at a time is the individual controller's responsibility. A civilian pilot, whether it be international or domestic, uh, he or she is used to dealing with air traffic controllers right across the planet. So they're very experienced as a pilot in communicating to you. How does that translate across to the Air Force, 
the fighter pilot or the caribou pilot or the Hercules pilot? Do they have the same level of instant communication skill as the civilian or not? Uh, basically, yes, they do. There are, or were, not so much these days, I'm un- told, I'm uh, led to believe, there were um, some uh, idiosyncrasies that were used by some military um, pilots, and they were uh, instances that had come to bear through times when they were only talking to military air traffic controllers, for example, say just close work, the fighter pilots close work with Williamtown might have uh, a a couple of idiosyncrasies between between, uh, controller and pilot. Those normally did not carry over when they were into other airspace, either other military airspace or um, military or civil airspace like Sydney. Let's take Williamtown as an example, uh, which services F-35s and, and other aircraft, but it's also Newcastle Airport, which has got domestic flights and international flights coming into it. When a jet, sorry, when an F-35 is coming to land at Williamtown, who is that pilot talking to? The RAAF air traffic controller or the civilian air traffic controller? Well, there's no civilian air traffic controllers at Williamtown. There is only one runway, so when we talk about RAF Base Williamtown and we talk about Newcastle Airport, it's the same runway, or a couple of runways. Yep. Uh, it's only after they get on the ground that it's divided. So under an agreement called the Joint User Agreement, um, goes back many, many years, the uh, aerodrome control at Richmond, at Williamtown, is run by the Air Force. I don't quite know how to put this, but I've got an F-35 wanting to land at Williamtown and I've got a a Virgin 380 wanting to land at Sydney Airport. Are they both talking, being spoken to by the same person or different people? Yeah, you said Sydney Airport there, Williamtown. Williamtown. Yes, same person because it's the same bit of bitumen on the ground. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yes, same, same person. And, of course, the the art of air traffic control and i'll call it an art lots of training that gets to there in the tower environment i.e coming into land or just taking off is a matter of uh, sorting out the relative the um, relative speeds um, i worked some time in darwin it was very interesting there with large domestic and international civilian aircraft with bug smashes and making sure one doesn't run into the other different speeds different approach speeds very interesting work across the australian continent how would you rank difficult to not so difficult sites mascot versus darwin versus newcastle etc difficult is probably the wrong word interesting um i would probably put darwin there right up at the top because the one aerodrome is handling, as I said, in, uh, both internationals and civilian big aircraft. It a, has a fighter squadron there sometimes. It has exercises there. It has a civilian flying training school, uh, all off the same bit of dirt. And because of the weather uh, during the monsoon or the wet season, many of the communities around can only be serviced by air. So at first light in the morning, you've got all of these um, light aircraft that are going out to those communities 
all trying to get off at the same time, all going in different directions, and at the same time you've got your civilian traffic to um, sure. to feed in in amongst that. That's in the morning. Coming up towards last light, they're all coming back. That gets interesting. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. For the Royal Australian Air Force Air Traffic Controller, who may be posted to... Uh, a hot zone, not necessarily a war zone, but a hot zone where they're looking after fighters, jet fighters, and they're mindful of, again, domestic and international flights. How challenging could that be? I can't give you a specific example without asking you to trade secrets. So just as a general question. The most interesting is caused by the level of competence of the pilot I'm, I'm assuming competence from the controller um, but if you've got a student pilot perhaps on first solo flying and you're trying to sequence him for landing and if you've only got the two and you're trying to match the speeds and the other aircraft is uh, well it could be an f-35 or an f-18 or but it could also be um uh, a 737 or uh, even a, a larger aircraft and it's making sure that the pilot of the light aircraft is competent enough to not accidentally get in the road I think about 1980, you're back in Darwin and you're promoted to squadron leader, examining, and I'm, I want you to explain what it is, examining standardisation office. What What is that? Uh, the check person, the person who does the um, the uh, checkings. He has a couple of people, some people who are training new people in, but then before they are given their rating, which is their license to go on their own in that locality that is uh, that person is then checked by the ESO the examining and standardization officer his responsibility is for as it says uh, examining people about to be let free and standardization across all of the controllers that they are doing all doing the same thing and in accordance with the relevant rules and uh, regulations can you remember what your first day on the job as as a person with your own screen and your own fourth dimension brain? Uh, can you remember that day? Can you relay it for us? I actually can't remember it, <laughs> to be honest, because it all sort of, it, it slides in. My first time in front of, of a screen was, uh, a radar screen, uh, was in fact a GCA, Ground Controlled Approach Screen, at East Sale, and that's a talk-down um, process. But the radar with that, very limited, it's, it's targeted. You pick up one aeroplane at a time, and you've got this narrow beam, then you can talk the aircraft down, turn right, turn left, increase, decrease, rate of descent, and so on, and get them down almost to the runway. Um, so that's not the sort of radar you're talking about. First time would have, uh, apart from that, would have been at um, um, Eagle Farm in Brisbane, and that would have been part of a course that I was doing, and I was there working on under a sector called Sector Four, and that's similar to Sector Eight that I described in in Sydney, but yep. sec Sector Four in Brisbane. No, I honestly can't remember it as a day. I don't think I don't think it was a bad day. <laughs> well, obviously not. I haven't heard about any crashes. Um, 
Peter, just a silly question. Do you at home, as you, when you're maybe younger, even now, do you play uh, video games? Uh, is, is that part of your, your skill set? It's not for me. Um, I, I know a lot of people who do. I'm not really into video games. Uh, just it's never appealed to me, I guess. But that's just a personal thing. It's not to do with a skill set per se. I've known, I've known a, a number of, well, a couple, uh, air traffic controller people who've gone in and now working full time and they're, they're not that old and they're all into highly skilled uh, computer games and I, I can't beat them at any of them so they're obviously looking at the screen and thinking and you what you call your fourth dimension uh, yes I, I can understand that and certainly uh, there's one that I I, I own uh, a copy of uh, F flight simulator and uh, I've only ever played with it once. I just, I don't know whether it's the the artificiality of it and therefore I'm not interested. I don't know. I, I have nothing against them. Don't get me wrong. No, no, just no, no, just, no, just, just doesn't it's, appeal to me. It was a silly side question. Just <laughs> no, Not at all. <laughs> moving right along. Have you had in your career as an air traffic controller any near misses or, or, or crises or issues that you've had to take control of? Not in terms of crashes. I was in the control tower at sale when two aircraft did crash, but they didn't crash on the airfield. So the involvement was purely the coordination of rescue efforts and, and the like. Um, I have had the situation where been a, uh, there's been a near miss or, or something, not under my control, thank goodness for that, but where one of my colleagues has had an issue and I've been involved in sorting, um, I guess I've had a fairly charmed life compared to some people who've seen some pretty awful things. I often wonder when you're in the control tower, what happens if the power goes off? Everything's run on triple redundancy. Um, there's a, uh, first of all, two, two batteries, and then a quick change uh, generation sys generator system. And uh, I'm not sure about today, but certainly back in my day, my God, that makes me feel old. Uh, we also, as a last resort, had a multi-frequency handheld device with its own battery that, uh, was available and it, it could we could um, allocate aircraft to that frequency picking them up on one of the emergency frequencies first and saying switch to and then work from there so there was always that capability now having said that electronics still have a way of teaching us that they're in charge and you may lose uh, momentarily some ground communications. Very, very rare to use to lose um, um, radio communications, as, and that's as I've just described. Uh, we can lose radar every now and again, but again, that is all backed up. In the event of a radar failure, you resort to what is called. Um, procedural control now, that's the basis of air traffic control that's what was there before we had radar and it's um, you then fall back to everything is in your head you no longer have a screen to even give you two dimensions so it's all in your head yep again that, that certainly puts you in that 
very select 20% possibility of the population. Were you not involved in uh, the new radar at Pierce, in, in, a civil radar? Two elements to that, Gareth. Uh, I, I worked one of my tours there. I worked at the Kalamunda Radar Centre, which was a civilian centre. So again, working alongside civilian controllers, but using their radars to talk to aircraft in the RAF Pierce or the Air Force uh, airspace. And then later on, the then new my God, I'm old, um, Surad Sur- <laughs> system came into being and uh, I was involved in the, that was whole new building on RAF Base Pierce and that was to take over what I'd been doing or what we'd been doing alongside the civilians at the Kalamunda station and that was to take the military side of that down onto RAF Base Pierce and that was a, a new building, all new, all new scope and displays and communications and a new radar, it, a new sure. radar itself. In the varied sectors of the Royal Australian Air Force, uh, there are people who achieve rank, uh, squadron leader, group captain, wing commander, whatever, whether they're an engineer, whether they're a pilot, whether they're an air traffic controller. You have been a squadron leader and also a wing commander. How did you see your role in those positions in relation to the entire Air Force? Air traffic control in... At, at all all ranks, in fact, in the Air Force, was seen for many years in the mind of some as a, a bit of a poor cousin. And that probably goes way back to post-World War II, where if you couldn't fly anymore, then you were stuck in the tower and uh, things sort of developed from there. These days, that's different. We, we have an air traffic controller now who's an air commodore, um, we have about four, I think, group captains in the Air Force. So the rank structure and the the acceptance of air traffic controllers as other people who can do a job, not necessarily just air traffic control. So that's been a big change since I left. I'd like to think I prodded it along from my position at the time. but uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sure you did. But again, what... When you were there and when you were a wing commander, how did you see or envisage your role? My role, well, as a squadron leader, I was, um, uh, the ESO in Darwin was um, active air traffic control. And then I was sideways into various jobs, as happens at that rank, into other jobs in Air Force office or in Canberra uh, or other places, uh, all sorts of different jobs. My promotion to um, wing commander, that was also um, non-air traffic control, sorry, non-active air traffic control related. My first job there was uh, personnel management in the numbers game. <laughs> that was interesting. I'd rather not talk about that, actually. Okay, well, we won't dwell there. <laughs> Let's let's dwell for a moment in 1987. Uh, You're now the head of the Royal Australian Air Force Air Traffic Control. Can you explain all of that? What was involved in in that role? It was a nominal head position. The position came under the operational requirements uh, branch of Air Force, 
but it was seen by all of the controllers across uh, all of the Air Force controllers as being the head of air traffic control. And the oversight from that position, as well as the operational requirements side of it, which is where the job sat, where the chair was, if you like, um, was also the oversight of training, training standards, um, moving forward with training, where that was going, um, oversight of School of Air Traffic Control. It was, as I said, a nominal position, not an active position, although me being me I um, I did interfere a couple of times down in the weeds um yeah that's, that's a different story too that's all right you, you retired Peter you retired in 1993 and I think a year later you went to work with the Civil Aviation Authority what was that like that's correct Gareth I was obviously as I'd gone up uh, up the ranks in Air Force terms um I had kept, no, not kept touch, had worked with civilian people who were also climbing the ladder on their side. And uh, I got a call from a, a mate, strangely enough, I could tell you a story, I might in a minute, um, um, to, with whom I'd gone to school. And he said, look, I've got a bit of a problem here. I know you've retired, you're trying to mow lawns and do things at home could you come and work with us for three months and sort out a particular issue? Now, this particular issue was not air traffic control. It was um, an issue of fighting with the union, I suppose you would say, on pay rises for air traffic control, civilian air traffic controllers. And I uh, said, oh, yes, I'll, I'll come along and have a look at that. So three months later, or a bit less, they said, well, thank you, they've sorted that out. Now, look, we've got this other one we'd like you to sort out as well, so can we get you to do another three months? So this was to do with the competency-based training and assessment of civilian air traffic controllers. Now, fortuitously, that was a process that they were trying to put in place that was very similar to what we had put in place many years before in Air Force air traffic control. Um, I wasn't involved in the implementation of that in the Air Force. It was already there, but I was involved in keeping it on track and, you know, minor amendments. So this second job with uh, CAA uh, just fitted perfectly. So I worked with that along with many of their other people as well. It was I wasn't carrying the can totally, but that was my position. And then towards the end of that, they said, look, we've got another little job for you to do. And uh, I wonder if you want to take it on. I said, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and the pay was all, pay was all right. I said, well, I said, what is it? And they said, we want you to create a position that does all of these things that you're doing in the organisation here, um, create it as a, an established position and fill it with yourself. So I took that as a bit of a compliment. I think it is. And did you? Yeah. Of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then uh, f- from then, uh, uh, that then took me into the um, standardisation and so on for civilian air traffic controllers as well. So still a lot of liaison with, uh, with the military. Uh, never let that go. It, once it's in your blood, it stays there. 
uh, with the, that role in civilian uh, life, towards the end of my time there, I was uh, acting manager of training standardisation assessment for all civilian air traffic controls. Was that the position you created? That's what it. That's the role that it took on. Yes. What did you call yourself? <laughs> Lots of things. Um, it, it was just a contract management position under the. Oh, it moved from human resources to being under the head air traffic controller. So it didn't actually have a title as such. How important to you, or how important are the various air force associations that exist around the nation? I think they're very important, and I think they are undersung, and I don't place any blame on anyone in particular for that. I'm also involved with National Seniors Australia, and they have exactly the same problem. It's um, being able to let people know that with that we and I'm talking about the Air Force Association that we are there what we do when and if we can help and please come and join us so that we can continue the brotherhood and sisterhood yeah I sometimes as an outsider looking in and especially having talked to a variety of people like you that the the existing RAAF the structure of the actual defense Sometimes when people leave it and various associations are formed, they lose sight of the fact that if it wasn't for these people, we wouldn't have a Royal Australian Air Force. So there should be a greater cooperation between, let me call it, the real RAAF as opposed to the associations. Is that a a fair summation? I guess it probably is. Um, I suppose the real issue is the association has, has for too long been pardon the tautology, associated with the retirees, the people who have retired. Uh, And usually, if they've retired, I'm talking about the ones who've retired from work as well. That's no longer the case. And there are quite a few people who are, maybe they've left the Air Force, they've still got another career, but they still want to keep the contact. So they do that through the uh, relevant... um, Uh, or respective associations. It's something that's on our mind. We've just had the New South Wales Division AGM and it was a constant comment there on making sure that we are relevant to the serving members now so that they become eligible and interested in becoming association members both while they're serving, which is ideal, and after they leave the service. Of course, What's also recognised is that while they're serving, and in many cases just after they leave, they are damned busy and they see the association as just another one of those things that they'd rather put aside for the time being. In the history, Peter, of the, or the centenary this year of the Royal Australian Air Force, I, I have to say that without an air traffic controller, there would be no Air Force. So for your contribution and all of your fellow air traffic controllers, I I have the greatest admiration and only can say on behalf of 100 years of history, thank you for your service, thank you for what you've done and thank you for being involved with the Royal Australian Air Force. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to say a few words. Globally, The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, 
contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.